I'm going to take those verses out of 1 Timothy chapter 6 that I um, skated over last week from verse 11 to verse 16, which are really the climax of the letter and the final charge. I think that would be what Paul would have called it if he was giving it a title. Paul's charge to Timothy is the heading at the top of my Bible for the passage. So can I just, by way of um, review, remind you as to the salient themes that have come out of the book. If you were to look back into chapter 1 again, you'll see there that Paul is addressing the whole issue of who he is and who God is. And we can only rightly understand ourselves in relation to who God is and our position before him. He makes that clear. And that the false teachers that he mentions that were causing trouble in Ephesus needed to come to that position to sort their lives out and their thoughts out in relation to who God is. He then goes on in chapter 2 to emphasize the central importance of the gospel. That Jesus came, died for sin, rose again to give us a new life, has ascended back to his Father and he's there at this very moment. Interceding for us, speaking to us, ruling over us. The gospel. And uh, I trust that this coming week, that that, that that word will mean so much to us, that the gospel will mean a lot to us, and we will be urgent in actually conveying it to others. That's what it's all about. And then he goes on to talk about the church as the centerpiece of God's great purpose for the earth. And having drawn attention to, the, who the, to what the church is, he enlarges as a, in the light of it on the high standards expected of elders and other officers in the church. He starts to talk about Timothy's ministry and the diligence and the standards that he must maintain. And there are a number of other rules and for widows and so on that he enlarges on in the light of the church and in the light of the gospel. And in chapter 6 last week, we looked at the whole position of contentment for the Christian. Content about the status of life that God has apportioned to us. That uh, there's a right ambition and a wrong ambition. That none of us are consigned to slavery, but there were a third of the population in Paul's day were in that category. And he addresses their problem and their state of heart as to what is important in life. Is it which rung of the ladder I live on? Or is it how well I live on that rung of the ladder? And then he addresses the whole question of wealth and riches and the danger that it can pose to us if desire for wealth and riches means more than it really ought to. And uh, I spent some time in trying to apply the, the, the relevance of that to the southeast of England. And uh, everybody said, Amen. At least that's my memory of it. Now in chapter, in chapter 6, verse 11 to 16, I'll read the passage to you. It's the final charge in which he tries to tie it up with Timothy. He says this, But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. 
Take hold of it, of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses, in the sight of God who gives life to, it, to, to everything, and of Christ Jesus who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession. I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will will bring about in his own time God the blessed, the only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honour and might forever. Amen. Ooh, he's off. Uh, oh yeah, the witch man. Oh, by the way, command those who are rich in this present world. Typical Paul, isn't it? We've had this before. He kind of goes, Yush! But I'll come to the Jewish in a minute. What we've got here are closing positive words to give Timothy a bit of metal, to galvanize him, to stir him, to give him purpose and drive and momentum. You see, the truth is that I can have all the right ideas about the standard and qualifications for elders. I can understand the theological basis of the gospel perfectly. I can know just what the church should do about widows, slaves, and young women. I can have all of my standards rightly set, but if there isn't drive in it, I don't implement what I know to be right. And he is giving a charge to Timothy which will not only inform him as to what is appropriate, but which will move him so that he starts to implement it. Now, I would say that that factor is a crying need in the church today. Many of us are sound, but we're not moving. Many of us understand and rejoice in the truth. And I've preached week by week and you've said, good word, the Lord spoke to me, hallelujah. But is the momentum there, the drive, that's the best word I can give for it really. The, the zeal, the punch, that it will actually stir me sufficiently so that I start to implement the very things that I know to be true. Now, that's what he's after in these closing words to Timothy. He's wanting to cultivate some momentum. Very, very similar in its framework, actually, to his opening words to Timothy in chapter 1, 16 to 19. Again, he soars in what's called a doxology, these great um, massive words that follow one after the other as he extols the nature of his God and gives a, a personal charge. The you is, is strong, it's emphasized, it's emphatic. At the beginning of verse 10, but you, man of God, is wanting to make it absolutely clear. So, that's what I believe Paul is doing. He's exhorting Timothy to a positive attitude and a positive perspective. Let's take them one at a time. I don't think, personally, that Tim was particularly lax. I don't think that Paul had had reports from Ephesus that Tim was sitting on his hands. I don't think that Timothy was in any way a man who was an indolent, lazy leader. I think Paul realised that we need a daily reminder 
that you, man of God, flee from all of this and pursue, fight, get hold of. And I don't think that it was in any way meant as a criticism to Timothy, but a reminder that as people, we need to be stirred. The, the tense of the verb is present continuous. It's Timothy, keep on fleeing, keep on pursuing, keep on fighting, keep on grasping. Can you see that? And his sixfold charge. The things he's got to flee, I'm not sure it's just a, a wrong attitude to wealth. There's the problem of contentiousness that's been set out here. Gold hunger, as one um, commentator put it. Um, general wickedness has been a problem that's arisen in the Ephesian church. And he describes these symptoms of the man of God. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love. What was the fourth? <laughs> Endurance and gentleness, meekness. And he, he gives a catalogue of things that, Tim, that Timothy ought to be going for. And he almost as a prescription of the qualities that are re re required of a man of God. He said, well, hang on a minute. Terry Virgo is a man of God. Ben Davis is a man of God. The, the superstars are men of God. One day, some of our elders might be a men of God. And, and we have that Old Testament perspective of what is meant by man of God. That if you read in Deuteronomy, in chapter 33, verse 1, it's Moses, the man of God. And yet he was, wasn't he? There he was, went into the tabernacle, face to face with the Almighty, man of God. And David, when he's giving his instructions about the tabernacle, about the nation, 2 Chronicle 8, 14. David, the man of God. And you have these other giants, spiritual giants, like Elijah, the man of God. Well, he was, wasn't he? Where's the, man, where's the prophet of the Lord? And the tremendous characters and men of stature. But I don't believe that uh, Paul is singling Timothy out. He's saying that all God's people, in those days, it was the kings and the prophets and the great men who were anointed. Now, in our day, it's John and Jack and Joe and Mary and Susan and, and Josephine that are, that are anointed. That as it was at one time, that the Spirit of God came upon certain individuals, now your sons and your daughters will prophesy. I will pour my Spirit out upon all flesh. And we believe it, don't we? That we are the anointed of the Lord. The leader is to be no more anointed than the person who ministers in a different way. And therefore, when Paul is writing to Timothy in his second letter, we know, I, I, we know the verse well. All scripture is inspired by God, 2 Timothy 3.16, and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, correcting, and training, training in righteousness. Why? Why? Why is the scripture inspired by God and profitable for you? So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. See, we're all to be Men of God, women of God. That's to be our quality, our distinctive characteristics, and that's why he lays them out. Now, you see, if we're not careful, if we don't actually see the thing that we're called to, we won't flee from that what's wrong. We won't run after. I try to think of things which, uh, in my life, which I've, have been so important to me, I've run for them. <laughs> I remember when I was at the grammar school, the boys' grammar, for some reason, got out a quarter of an hour after the girls' grammar. 
I think it was so that all the girls went on one bus and all the boys went on another. But if you got out straight out at the end of the last lesson and belted the mile and a half down the hill to Lancaster bus station, if you really went for it, you could just about get on the bus with the girls on. I really went for it. Because they pursue, rather like the mother that sees their child in a place of danger, will, will go for it with urgency. I don't know what you run for. But here Paul is saying that righteousness and godliness and love and faith and endurance and meekness, run for it. Make it so, it, make it like the bus. <laughs> go for it. These are the important things, man and women of God. Run for it. Fight for it. The, the word was used earlier um, in, in chapter 1 and verse 18. Fight the good fight of faith. And there it was fight the good fight. And then he it, it enlarged on what he meant by faith. Colossians 1. Let me turn you to it to en enlarge on the meaning of it. Colossians 1 and verse 29. To this end I labour struggling with all my energy which so powerfully works within me. So that, that this calling to be godly is something I've got to run for, I've got to fight for. Fight the good fight of faith. And isn't it lovely, when you fight, it doesn't have strength in your faith. When you stand up and are counted, it actually consolidates what you believe to be true in your life already. And then this lay hold on eternal life. I, I love the phrasing of that. Get a firm grip of it. Really get hold of it. Get hold of eternal life, Timothy. Run after it. Struggle for it. But whatever you do, get hold of it. Get to grips with it. It's, the, it's, an, it's a, an ideal phrase to use, is, is it not? Lay hold, Timothy. Get hold. Get it within your grasp. Make it so important that it's a thing you hold on to. That everything else go, but I'm having that. Lay hold of eternal life. Now, I believe that what Paul is, in, is instilling in Timothy is a positive attitude. Now, there have been many criticisms of men like Kenneth Copeland and Kenneth Hagin and the prosperity people. But the thing which I find very, very refreshing about those men's ministry is that they are positive about faith and my progress and what I've got to go for. And we meet so many Christians that are so, are so iffy and so wishy-washy. Thank God for the Christians who know what they want and they've laid hold of it, fought for it, run for it. And that kind of positive attitude, it's, it arises out of an understanding of God. He mentions there um, in verse 14, on oh, verse 13, in the sight of God who gives life to everything. See, it's part of his perspective. Is it, is it, is it, he's informing Timothy that it's all there. There's absolutely no reason to be negative, passive, miserable. God has called us to fight for it, get hold of it, run for it, and be positive about it. And he, he almost unexpectedly 
You're reading that, but what's Pontius Pilate doing here? Do you think that when we're reading through it? What a strange reference. Well, what's he saying? Jesus fought for it, took hold of it, and ran for it. Did he not? Was not the sense of purpose and destiny most supremely seen in Jesus when he made his good confession? And when he stood before Pilate? That the, the pinnacle of his clear understanding and determination to be positive. He knew, he, he despised the shame because he knew that there was victory in the cross and he had to go for it. And I believe that Paul is saying that very thing to Timothy. I'm not quite sure how we work it through. It's easy to be bland and indifferent and passive, isn't it? Isn't it? Because it must be, because a lot of God's people tend to lapse into it. Mark and I, you'll be glad to know this, Mark and I recently went on a seminar with Mark Europe on, on the, the effective use of your time. And we sat there like a pair of business executives. Everybody else had, had briefcases, but we didn't. But never mind, we, we kind of blended in when this chat was inspiring us about goals and objectives, and time planning, and schedules, and prioritizing. That's good of And delegation. <laughs> Did you really? I was planning my schedule when he said that. But the thing that actually helped me, or one of the things that helped me, was the difference between an aim and a goal. Of course I aim to be righteous, and godly, and loving, more or less, and unbelieving, and enduring, and meek. Of course, yes, I do want to be like that, but it's all iffy. It's all vague. And they said that the things that we want that are only aims, we never get there. That a goal is specific, it is reachable, and it's within a time scale. So I have to go back to the list that Paul has given to Timothy and say, now then, before September, what have I got to do to ensure in a practical sense, in a measurable quantitative form, that I will be more righteous then than now? So come September the 1st, I can check on myself. What will it mean in practical terms to be more godly, more believing, more loving, more enduring, more meek? You see, if it's just an aim, it's all up there. It doesn't actually force me to change down here. But if it's a goal, and if I'm seeking for it, getting hold of it, fighting for it, it will be measurable. Now, it will be different for all of us. The, the, the developmental task, as a psychologist would call it, for my next phase in godliness will be different for everybody in the room. But it would seem to me that Paul is being quite specific here and saying, don't say, well, godly, yes, I've got to be like Peter by September. Well, forget it. But for you, what is your goal in terms of righteousness by the autumn? September the 30th. September the 30th. What is your goal for godliness by September the 30th? What is your goal when it comes to being loving? 
What's mine? In terms of believing, Paul, Addison, Sunday night, the word of the Lord, taking hold of it, walking in faith. What am I going to believe for by September the 30th? What am I going to stand and endure rather than backing off and capitulating? Or meek? Where have I got to learn meekness instead of the way I've conducted myself in relationships so far? Being specific and measurable. You see, this Christian determination where they contend for the prize, the fight the good fight is, is almost an Olympic, it may be wrestling or it may be running, I'm not quite sure, but it's certainly not laid back. It's certainly not the, men, the attitude, oh, well, it'll happen. If I grow in grace, it'll happen and I won't know it's happening. I, it, it won't happen. Or it'll happen 1% instead of 90%. And I don't think that we are going to, to fight and grasp. I think we will flee if we don't actually have the determination to carry through what we know to be right. Which is why he's giving him a charge. May apply to this fortnight too in terms of evangelism. It may require us to be to have a little bit more steel and purpose and drive rather than just settling back and allowing that which comes easy to be the thing that determines our course. That's the first thing, a positive attitude. Cultivate it. I'm having lessons. Paul Anderson's been my tutor in the subject for some time and I'm grateful for it because he's a positive bloke, isn't he? Isn't he? Yes? gets on your nerves sometimes when you're feeling down. But thank God for positive people. Yes? So secondly, a positive perspective. There are three reasons given why we should have no spot or reproach on us. Three motivating factors that he establishes in these verses. The first one is Jesus' example. We've, we've covered that. We stand and make a good confession because he stood and made a good confession. Secondly, his appearing. And thirdly, his character. Let's look at the last two in terms of our positive perspective. Verse 13. I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. A definite historical event in the future where Jesus will come back personally and powerfully. All the cynics, all the Jehovah's Witnesses that have got it wrong, all the weird and wonderful theories, you lay them all on one side. One thing is abundantly clear, Jesus is coming back at the end of this age. And he's going to stand on the Mount of Olives in the same way coming back that he went. That's what the angels said when he ascended after the day of Pentecost. And just, I, I, we, we could look at the day of Pentecost, we could look at Corinthians 15, the great momentous chapters that deal with the return of Jesus at the end of this age. But it's also very interesting to look at just in the general drift of the apostles' letters how often the theme appears. If you have your Bible, turn to 1 Thessalonians 3. I'm just going to pick some verses. I don't know how many. I've got quite a few here. But I just want to establish something in your mind about how prominent in Paul's thinking the appearing, the second coming, the return of Jesus was. 1 Thessalonians 3.13 May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy 
in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes. Hallelujah. With all his holy ones. What a prospect. Turn over into chapter 5 and verse 23. May God himself the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Turn back to what to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8. Another phrase that he uses quite a lot. 1 Corinthians 1.8 He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sorry, I'm juggling all the place. I should have stayed in Thessalonians. So turn back to 2 Thessalonians 2.8. Last one. I won't do any more for a minute. Talking about the, the rebellion and the end times before Jesus comes, the man of sin, the man of lawlessness who will arise in some particular form. We don't know what yet. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy at the splendour of his coming. Now, if you read through the New Testament, you'll find references to the return of Jesus on page after page. Right at the beginning of the book of Revelation, I told you there'd be more. Right at the beginning of the book of Revelation, in Revelation 1 and verse 8, he begins the, the picture with the words of Jesus. I am the Alpha. And the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty, sorry, verse 7. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And the fact of Jesus coming is intended to move me. Don't turn these up. Let me read them to you. In Paul's second letter, he makes a very similar appeal to Timothy with the same motivation. For one, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. In the view of his appearing and of his kingdom, I give you this charge. And it motivates the man. You have the same sort of thing in Titus, the letter afterwards, 2.13. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And tragically, the second coming has become a, a hunting ground for idiots and fanatics. And people who have distorted the whole purpose of the doctrine in order to have something which is speculative. That's not the purpose in the scripture. I need to live, as they say, as if Jesus died yesterday, rose today, and is coming back tomorrow. Now, he may not, in my understanding of prophecy, is that he won't. Because there are things yet to be fulfilled in this book which are, which are not in place yet. But I, I need to live with my loins girt. Remember the parables of Jesus? Waiting for the bridegroom to come. Ready. Jesus said, watch, watch, and be ready. So that's the second reason of a positive perspective. How healthy, how, how much help we would be to be kept from materialism 
and getting sucked into the pressures and demands of this world, if only we lived with an expectation of Jesus coming in the clouds in power and glory. Wouldn't we? Do you remember um, at the time of Jesus' birth, that old man in the temple who was waiting for the consolation of Israel? Yeah? And he was about praying, seeking, reading the word, looking for the Saviour coming. And they brought Jesus for circumcision and placed him in the man's hands. And now let thy servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. And he was looking for it. And so should we. That's the second, moment, the second reason. But then there's the third one. Probably, and certainly in the eyes of many, the finest doxology in the Holy Scripture. I think we need a prize for the person who can make the best chorus out of verse, what is it? Verse 15 and 16. Isn't it funny that nobody's written a chorus on, not, not to my knowledge, they've written a few hymns. But the, this launch pad, Paul is, is developing. He's begun to think about the second coming and he's got excited. Right? He's stirred. And it, he, he, he launches off, when God, which God will bring about in his own time. God the blessed, the only ruler, the king of kings, the lord of lords who alone is immortal, who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen nor can see, to him be honour and might forever and ever. And he's moved, see. He, earlier in the first chapter, he's talking about the death of Jesus and the redemption of Jesus and how Jesus has saved him, the most unworthy. And he says, unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. 1 Timothy 1.8. And he's, can you see what's happening? The truth of it is exciting the man. God, give us excited believers. Oh. You should have all been on your chair shouting hallelujah. Go on, Colin. Give the preacher some encouragement. His character. Let you down. The potentate. That's how the authorised version, I think, translated it. He's inspired. He's excited about Jesus. The King of Kings. And the Lord of Lords. It's got to be about Jesus because if you read in Revelation 19, that's his name on his thigh and on his side. He has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The immortal, the, not that he is the only immortal one, but he's the only inherently mortal one. He was and he is and he is to come. And the Jewish background of Exodus 30, where Moses said, Let me see your face. And he said, Get in the crack and I'll walk past and I'll put my hand over. Because you can't see me, but you can see my fading parts. Remember? And this is the Lord. This is his splendor. Immortal. Invisible. God only wise. In light inaccessible. Hid from our eyes. Most blessed. Most glorious the ancient of days. Almighty victorious. Thy great name we praise. And one of the reasons that I think we should sing a hymn of that nature when we come together, is in order to expand our conception of God. And we need to get a grip and an understanding of just how great the Lord is. Crown him the Lord of years, the potentate of time, creator of the rolling spheres ineffably sublime. All hail, Redeemer, hail. And something of that needs to stir within my breast. Doesn't it? Don't you long that your perspective was as positive as Paul's. 
And you're writing about the second coming and you can't control it. Out it comes. Now, he was a Jew. There's something about his phrasing and the way that he expresses himself, which is distinctly Jewish. And you will express it in your way. But this is one of the reasons in a time of worship that the the leader of it says, speak your praise to the Lord. Why? Because like Paul, there's something in here which can stand in the presence of God and say to the, God the blessed, the only ruler. You could imagine him here on a Sunday morning, couldn't you? The Apostle Paul at the back, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal, who lives in a unapproachable light, who, who none can see or can see and so on. And he's moved and he's stirred by the character of God. It's interesting that in the context of warfare and maybe spiritual warfare, that we are to let praise rule in our hearts, not panic. I don't believe that warfare should ever have a, have a place of panic, only of praise and confidence in God's ability and of his honour and his power. And we do need to be inspired. Many of us need to get a glimpse of something. Because Paul certainly had a glimpse of something. God's awful majesty. And uh, is this conception of God my conception? Is my God too small? Do I need to read the Old Testament again and see who the Lord is who loved me and gave himself for me? So that's it. Have you made a good confession? The tense is ourist. It's a once and for all tense. Speaking of possibly his conversion or his confession at baptism, that great positive step that he made to be a Christian in the first place. When he received Christ and and moved that way. We need a lot of positive steps. We need to keep on taking them. But maybe some of us need to make a good confession right from the start in order to clear out the muddle. I kind of, I think I'm a Christian, but I'm not sure. Well, you need to let let the Lord Jesus have your life and know that you've done it. You need to confess your sins to him and ask him to forgive you and come into your heart and make you new inside. The Holy Spirit's got to come in as a response to your good confession. But if he has, well then, the charge and the command is for us as well. And there's no messing. 